It's good to see everyone, and particularly good to see a good buddy of mine, Phil. You guys may not know this, Epic Life has been here in Sacramento for now eight years, which is crazy, but you might not have known that it actually started in a dorm room, literally in Santa Barbara, with that man right there. Phil, could you say hi, stand up? <laughs> and um, we were college roommates, and so Epic Life started as this uh, ministry idea to reach out to skateboarders, motocrossers, and I bought this, like, t-shirt maker in our room, and the poor guy, like, would sit, trying like study and sleep and, like, making shirts at night and trying to sell them, and so, anyways, he's here with us, and excited to see him. If it is uh, your first night here tonight with us, you're kind of catching the tail end of uh, an exciting series. It's probably been one of my most favorite topics and series we've ever done uh, here, and it's definitely been the one that I've had the most feedback and input, emails, coffees, burritos, about. And so uh, I encourage you guys to look back on it. If this topic interests you, it's one of my favorite ones. And to get some of the podcasts, they're all on the website, epiclife.org, or in iTunes, you can search it in there. But it all started when a famous theologian gave a eulogy for a very tragic accident of a family of missionaries who had three young children the ages were five, three, two, and one. So actually, they had four children. <laughs> and they got in an accident on the freeway. And they all burned to death on the road. And his sermon, his eulogy was, God, you have pierced their breast with your quiver. You have filled our mouths with gall. And I've been studying the will of God and studying the goodness of God for a long time. And when I read this and, and found that it had been shared 80,000 times and people saying, amen, yes, Jesus. It's like, i got to like address this. It, it, it gnaws at my soul. And so the very first week we asked the question of what is God's role in trials? And like, unlike popular belief, many Christians believe that God is authoring trials, tribulations, and tragedies. But the truth that we found is that those things try and separate you from the love of God. Jesus two times talks about people falling away because the trials and tribulations were too much for them to endure. Now you might say, well, wait a second. I thought the scripture says neither trials, tribulations, blah, 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 can separate us from the love of God. That's true. cannot separate us from the love of God, but it can separate you from loving God. The trials for your life, they come against your love for God. They don't come against his love for you. And he also doesn't send them to teach you because he's given us the Holy Spirit, which teaches us all things. There's no situation or circumstance in your life that can teach you better than the Holy Spirit. In the week two, we looked at redeeming the theology of joy in trials. And a lot of our theology that God causes trials and tribulations is confused because we're instructed to rejoice for our trials. Except we realize that the command is not to rejoice for our trials, it's to rejoice during our trials which is a major difference. We don't rejoice for our circumstances. We rejoice during our circumstances. And that it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength to endure. He helps us to overcome our trials. It makes no sense that God would cause your trials, but yet empower you to overcome them. And we joy in the Lord, and it is impossible to have joy in the Lord if you believe that he is the author of your pain. So we looked at joy and trials, and I thought that was it. It's like, I feel really good. My two favorite possibly messages ever. 
And then I get all these emails and like everyone's like, wait a minute, but what about this? And what about that? And there are two things consistently, two things consistently that seem to completely contradict those teachings. I have no shortage of emails, text messages, and conversations about it. And the first was, well, what about Job? Didn't God offer up Job? And what about Jesus and suffering for God's glory? And so the third, we looked at Job, and we realized that actually the story of Job, we've actually gotten completely wrong. We learned some amazing things about it. Job was a great man, but what we learned is that Job didn't know Satan. It was interesting because we looked at that chronologically, where does Job fall? It's like, well, somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Actually, the book of Job falls after Genesis 10. Jesus says, I come to give you life, but the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus was talking about Job. The book of Job is the first recorded instance where the devil steals, kills, and destroys. Job had no idea the devil was even capable of that, let alone his name. The book of Job has the Satan mentioned 14 times. In the entire Old Testament, Satan is mentioned 18 times. But yet never once does Job, his brothers, his sisters, his family, his wife, his friends, ever mention the name of Satan. So we realize that Job is not our poster child for how to look at trials because he had no idea what was afflicting him. We realize that, in fact, the story of Job is where Satan gets his reputation as the thief, the killer, and the stealer. And so finally, the last one this week is the words of Jesus. Anytime Jesus says something, it's really troubling. Because you can't get away, oh, it's, you know, the Psalms, the deep places, or it's Lamentations. We kind of give some, like, margin here, depending on where it's found. But when it's Jesus' words, you're kind of stuck. This is one of the more tough ones because it seems to imply that sickness and suffering is for God's glory. If you don't believe that sickness and suffering is for God's glory, you're actually in the minority category or population of Christians. It's widely believed. If you Google search God, glory, suffering, if you Google search, you'll find thousands of articles, links, it all like almost unanimously supports this idea. The problem is that there's about one verse that defends it. One. It's a really troubling verse. I think it's actually the most troubling verse in possibly all the Bible. And this one verse, we've built an entire theology, a belief that God gives people sickness in order to have glory. One. Now what would happen if we found out that that one verse was wrong? Would you, in your heart for me, if you believe that sickness, suffering is for God's glory, if we look at the scripture and find it to be wrong, would you change what you believe about God and his goodness? And that's what I want to do tonight. You guys ready for the most troubling verse in all the scriptures, in my opinion? It's one of those verses you find, you're like, I'm just going to keep flipping over that one. Pretend like I didn't see that. We all know there's some like that in the Bible. It's John chapter 9, verse 1-3. It says, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Uh Uh-oh. God doesn't cause trials, tribulations, and tragedies of a man born blind from birth. Jesus says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed. I've been emailed this verse many times. What happened? He's born blind. Why? For God's glory. It's an open and closed case, isn't it? And this is the definitive verse that supports that paradigm that God is the author, the ordainer of sickness, affliction, disease, you name it. And they say it's all for God's glory. Now again, if you put this verse into Google or if you search glory in suffering, if you say God's purpose in suffering, you will find this verse all the time. The number, well, probably number three Google search, I just typed this, is like, what is in there? Because I'm like blown away by the amount of theology built around this passage. I found an interesting article defending, for me it's defending, talking about the truth of this, God's purposes in suffering. And so not only does he cite this passage and underlines that verse, and like Jesus tells us, he then adds stories and testimonies from people to prove the point. Because if anybody says it on the internet, it must be true. <clears throat> The stories are heartbreaking. Not only uses this verse, it says this verse is true because of this story. And there's a wife whose husband, we'll call him Bob, died and left her a widower at her young age. And this is her testimony. This is one thing that I've become convinced of is that God has different definitions for words than I do. For example, he does work all things for my eternal good and his eternal glory. But his definition of good is different than mine. My good would never include cancer in young widowhood. My good would include healing and dying together in our sleep when we are in our 90s. But cancer was good because of what God did that he couldn't do any other way. Cancer was, in fact, necessary to make Bob and me look more like Jesus. So in love, God allowed what was best for us in light of eternity. Look more like Jesus? I didn't know Jesus died of cancer early. God allowed what was best for them? Young widowhood dying of cancer. My mom is, I I left this out when I told it last time. My mom had cancer. She's free of cancer. Amen. But I'll tell you what, in the prayer time, we like prayed for it to begin. Didn't see that coming. Was God, let your glory be revealed. God, what's your plan in this? You have it under control. And for me, I was just like, have you ever like prayed and contradicted somebody else in the prayer meeting? It's like, Jesus, I break the lie that this is from you. I just went for it. It's like, it's cancer. It's a big deal. Like, I'm not going to hold back. If God's best is cancer, that's not a very good best, is it? If he's lacking ideas, I probably could come up with some. But it's not. And in the same article, it shares another testimony from a book called When God Weeps. It's a very popular book, and it's this woman who had paralysis, and she says this, before my paralysis, my hands reached for a lot of wrong things. 
and my feet took me to some bad places. After my paralysis, tempting choices were scaled down considerably. My particular affliction is divinely tailored expressly for me. Nobody has to suffer transverse spinal lesion at the fourth and fifth cervical exactly as I did to be conformed to his image. In other words, she's saying that she had a problem with temptation, so God paralyzed her to help her with her temptation. Again, this is an article saying this is truth. This is the first page of Google. You find this. This is modern Christian contemporary thought. And they all circle back to John 9. Saying that this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. These stories, it all funnels back to this passage. So what do we do with it? It's right there in black and white. It's in the Bible. It's not in like the weird books. It's like Jesus. What do we do with this? It seems clear. And there are five revelations to learn from this one passage. Let me show you a picture. Anybody know what that is? It is a page in the Greek that happens to be part of the Bible. So when we read the Bible in English, it comes from this. This is what the translators have and what they derive their meaning. That's what they took in the Greek. All of our New Testament's in Greek. They took this and then translated it into English for us. Now, besides it being in Greek, can anyone tell me what is different about how they write, how this is written, versus how we would write? Does anybody notice something that's different? Not the direction. Not the order. Exactly. There's no punctuation. There's no punctuation. Punctuation, the Greek, wasn't invented until several hundred years after Christ. The oldest copies of our scriptures, Hebrew and Greek, the Old Testament, New Testament, not a single period, not a single comma. No punctuation at all. Interesting. We're going to come back to that, but I want you to remember that, okay? Now, the version that I read of John 9 happened to be from the NIV translation. Does anybody have an NIV Bible in their home? Who, like, grew up with the NIV Bible? A lot of us. It happens to be the most, there's one right there, amen. It happens to be the most widely distributed version of the Bible in our modern era. 450 million copies of this translation sold since 1980 or 77 or something like that. Why was it the easiest to, sorry, why was it the most popular? Because it's easy to read. Yes. I know we have some King James love in here. No offense. But it's the easiest to read. Why was that the easiest one to read? You might not know this, but the NIV was one of the first thought-for-thought translations of the Bible. It means an idea for an idea. A lot of translations of the Bible at that point were kind of word-for-word, word, but the NIV Bible is a thought-for-thought thought translation. 
And this passage in this translation has been used the most to build the doctrine that God gives people sickness in order for him to have glory. Now let me give you the exact same passage of scripture, but with a new American Standard Bible, which is tougher to read, but it tries to be a word-for-word translation. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, do you notice anything that's different about this passage already? It's missing the key phrase that the NIV had that said, this happened so that. Hmm. The NIV said, in Jesus' words, this happened so that, is what the NIV said. And here it says, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed. Now, why would the NIV translate it so differently? It might be helpful to know that the NIV translation was conceived by the Christian Reformed Church of North America. That may not mean anything to anybody. You're like, so what? Well, the Christian Reformed Church of North America is theologically Calvinist. What's the Calvinist view? That's a whole separate message. (laughs) But it's the belief that God controls everything. That nothing happens. Every single thing. The fact that we're all here. It's God's will that we're all here. God's will is everything. Nothing happens outside of his will. His sovereignty is supreme. Every molecule in the universe is ordained and rendered certain by his sovereignty. I read all those books. That's the theology of the Calvinist view of the Christian Reformed Church of North America, which inspired the NIV. What does this mean? It means that the NIV translation has a bias towards Calvinism. And so the second revelation for you tonight about this troubling passage is this, is that translations have theological biases. I have a theological bias. I'm sure you guys can tell. But the translation that we read has a bias to the person who's translating. And so we have to look at this passage that the most modern interpretation of this passage has been, has been propagated by a stream of Christianity, a view of God's sovereignty that may be a little bit different. And so translators, what they've done is that they have taken verbs and words from the Greek and they have interpreted them according to what they feel is is happening in the scriptures, but also according to their theological view. Now let me put the passage back up again. Wait for it. Now this is going to go back to the word-for-word translation. What else do you notice about this? There's some italics in there. This is the word-for-word translation from the NASB. When you read the NASB, it usually puts different words in italics. There's five of them. It should be, it was, but there's five of them. Five italicies in one sentence. That's kind of unique. What's up with that? What does it mean to have an italics in the scriptures? It means the word is implied, 
not actually there. When you see italics in the Bible with a word-for-word translation, it means that the translators are putting in what they think got missed. So you know how when we talk, we write, we miss a word? It's like, well, he really meant the instead of then, or he really meant to and from, and he just missed that. So these italicies in this scripture point to words not actually in the original Greek, in the original manuscript. So this is the third revelation of this passage, is that translations add implied words. So when we look at a really challenging scripture, the first thing we need to do is like, is it word for word? The second thing we need to do is, is there a bias in the theology of the person who translated it? The third is like, are all the words original words? I know I'm going really granular. I know that, okay? But I think this is the most harmful passage in all the Bible, and it's good that we get it right. But you need to know that the translators add implied words to kind of help us fill in to know what is being said. Now, this is fine, except that you, again, will add implied words according to your theological view. If the translators don't think the original text is clear, they're going to add implied words to complete the thought. But in this passage alone, one passage, one sentence, there are five. I can't find another passage in the Bible that has five implied words that's been added to it. So allow me now, I'm going to read John 9 passage as we have it word for word without any implied words added. Jesus answered, Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now we're kind of getting somewhere. Something's kind of fishy. That is the exact words from the Greek. But there's a troubling little point there. I bold and underline the words so that when it says, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now this is a Greek word called hina. Everyone say hina. And it actually means in order that. It's interesting. You look it up, hina, it says in order that. And then it gives some different variations. It's the same Greek word, but remember, the translators are going to find the Greek word, and they're going to try and find what the best explanation in English is. For example, the word but in this actually also means nevertheless. So in this passage, we could say, neither his, his parents sinned, I'm sorry, neither this man nor his parents sinned, nevertheless, so that the works of God. So you have a little bit of leeway here in the passages for how the the translator wants to put it into English. Are you following me? It's about to get crazy. What does this mean? The fourth revelation is that many Greek words have alternate meanings. Just because it says it exactly as it's written to you doesn't mean it's actually the correct way. I'm in no way trying to say that the Bible is not reliable. I'm just saying the men who translate the Bible sometimes aren't. All right, is that clear? Like, you do not need to be afraid of the Bible. But I'm saying when there's something that's fishy, there might be fish around the corner. (laughs) And so this is an area when the word but can mean nevertheless, the translators get to choose how they want to put it into English. And you will do that according to your theological view. You guys with me? And so they can have multiple meanings. But this word, hina, actually means in order that. Which to me is like, huh, that's weird. 
It's used in order in all these different places. And then here they say it, so that. Now again, I know that this is really in the details. But all of this theology hangs on this verse that we get this verse right. Let me review. What's unique about the Greek language? No punctuation. What's unique about implied words in the scriptures? They're added by translators to help us understand. What's unique about Greek words is they can have multiple meanings. And what's unique about our modern teaching on this passage, which 450 million copies of the Bible, it is translated by a particular view of theology that says that God does everything. Did you know that in the Bible, in the 1981 version of the Bible, the NIV has the word control like 75 times. Down to things like God controls minds, people, sin. God controls, you know, clouds and, you know, all these different things. In the actual Greek and Hebrew, the word control is only there eight times. And every single time it's about self-control. Why? is because the NIV took words that actually mean authorship and authority and said control. Authority and control in my world are two different things. All right. So now let me reread for you the exact word-for-word translation as it ought to have been properly translated, in my opinion. And I'm going to do it again without any punctuation the best I can because the punctuation we're going to save for last. Jesus answered, Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. If you were reading just the Greek manuscript, that's how it sounds like. You're just, you're going on, okay? And at this point, as a translator, you get to decide where punctuation goes. You, as a translator, decide when does one thought end and another begin? Because where a thought ends and where another one begins completely transforms the meaning of what you want to say. Here is what I believe, if I was translating this based on what I know, here is what I would have translated and here's where I would have put the punctuation marks to begin one thought and end another, is this. This is the new Eric translation here for you. Jesus answered, neither this man sinned nor his parents. But in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. That is a different passage than the one we opened with. Neither this man sinned nor his parents. End of thought. That was the question. The disciples asked, who sinned to make this man blind? Him or his parents? Which reminds me of my like, toddler because she asks the most like, awkward questions in the most difficult situations all the time. They just have no filter. So here the disciples are. They see a man who's been blind since birth. And the best they can do for him is ask, who messed up on this? Was it him or his parents that sinned to make him blind? And Jesus answers the thought. Neither his parents nor him sinned. 
I answer your question. And then he says, but in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me. In other words, if we're going to show the power of God in this guy, we better do it now because I'm going to the Father. People don't heal themselves all alone by themselves. If we're going to heal somebody, we better start laying some hands on, is what he's saying. He's saying this man doesn't get healed all by himself, but when we lay hands on people, when we impart to them a supernatural impartation of them who sent me, he's going to get healed. But we better do it because one day all this goes away. We can either be a full-time critic or part-time healer. And Jesus is saying, whether you decide to act may determine his healing or not. We must work while we still can because night is coming. What is night? That means the end of the world. When Jesus talks about the end, he's like talking about the end. He's not like, it is like 7 o'clock and we got to get some fish because I need to go eat. He's not talking about that day. He's talking the end of when we can do the works of the kingdom. The final revelation is that Jesus' words in this passage, I humbly submit to you, are grossly misinterpreted. Our modern understanding for this passage, I submit to you, we've gotten wrong. I believe with my entire heart that Jesus is simply saying, people don't get healed by themselves. Take action for the days are few and there won't be time forever that if we're going to do something, we should do it now. Now this understanding of this scripture, I hope for you it changes everything. I know I'm like literally preaching to the choir that probably many of you probably already agree with my you know, view of God's purpose in trials. But what this should do is it should take the final thorn out of our flesh about does God really not send trials and sickness? Does God really good all the time? I'm troubled that our modern theology always makes like God is guilty until proven innocent. Why do we have more commentaries on how God causes tragedy, 9-11, people dying in cars, giving cancer and paralysis? We have more commentary on that than we do for people getting healed in the kingdom. God is, in our modern theology, proven guilty unless we really convince someone that he's innocent. Why is it that when we discuss God's role in sickness, we come up with John 9 saying that God made him sick in order that he might have glory in his sickness. Instead, we don't point to John 10 that says, I've given you authority to cast out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Why do we pick John 9? Why don't we pick Matthew 10? There's many more passages of Jesus healing someone than Jesus saying, oh man, they really messed up because this is God's glory at work. God does not cause sickness for the exact purpose that he is empowering you to cast it out. God, you can take this to the bank. The single reason that God does not cause sickness is because he's empowered you to cast it out. Jesus took sickness off of people. He didn't lay it upon them. If God causes people to be sick and he empowers you to heal the sick, then every time you cast out sickness, you're kind of casting out God, are you not? You cannot invoke the name of God to cast out sickness if the sickness is actually the works of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever prayed a faithless prayer. I was an expert. 
God, if it's your will to heal this person, please make them better. But if you don't, we know it's for your glory. We know you have a purpose in it. Have you prayed on those prayers? Do you like carve out all your like outs in the prayer in case it doesn't work? We just command breakthrough Jesus, but if you don't, we'll be okay, you know? We're believing you so much, but if you don't, we're going to, you know, just move on. And explain it some other way. I guess it wasn't his will. That is what I always said. Well, I guess it wasn't his will. Because everything that happens is God's will, right? You didn't get healed, you didn't get that job. I guess it's not God's will. Now that sounds like it should comfort us, but I'm telling you that is the toxic poison in our faith. Why is because we continue to elevate the passage, passages or passage, this passage, so that God creates sickness instead of takes it away. Why is it that we do that? Here's a fact for you. It is impossible to pray for healing if you believe God makes people sick. Have you ever prayed and seen someone get healed? If you haven't, it might be because you think that God's to blame in the first place. I wasn't planning on sharing this story. I have this crazy video. We're in Santa Barbara in May, and a bird comes into the house. Flying around, the dog is like, ah, like, I'm going to get it. Comes around, the bird's flying around. I'm like trying to like get it, and it like, the dog jumps on the window. The bird like flies around, thinks it's going out to the clouds. Boom, head first in the window, dead. Head's like. And my little girl, who's four, is like, what's wrong with the bird? I'm like. I'm not ready to explain death in little bird to a four-year-old right now. I'm going to grab the bird. I'm going to go outside. I have video of this. For about 10 minutes, we're like, Jesus, you like to heal birds. Jesus, you love birds. Put my little fingers on its beak. <laughs> we speak life into you, bird. I'm having Scarlet, like, she's praying for this bird that's, like, basically dead. Camille's like, I'm out of here, you know. <laughs> this is too weird. And I'm like, right now is actually a battle for the theology of my little girl. Maybe God doesn't heal the bird, but I won't say God's plan was for the bird to die. I sat there. I'm like, this is getting awkward. I start begging, God, you are good. Give me an example for my daughter. The little bird flew away. Yeah. Not even kidding. It like it startled me. And it, unfortunately, I stopped <laughs> recording right before it flew away. But I then recorded my daughter and we talked about it. And it's like the most crazy thing. Now, Camille could not believe it, but she's like, oh, maybe it was just stunned or whatever, but I saw that head, and it was like, it, it was not coming back. <laughs> but here's the thing. Even if the bird was stunned, God answered my prayer with a dying bird in my hand that flew away. 
My daughter got to see that when we pray, things happen. To me, it's not even a matter of like, well, was there an x-ray on the bird? Or did you have a, like a you know, cardiograph on it? Like, how dead was the bird? It doesn't matter how dead the bird was. If I didn't believe that God heals, I just would have fed the bird to my dog. Coming up. I took it out. What I'm getting is that your mindset of God's role in your pain, in your sickness, in your tragedy, that is going to change everything for your future. It's going to change your prayers. It's going to change your future. It's going to change your outcomes. That's the point. What do you believe? Do you believe God is your healer or your afflictor? It cannot be both because Jesus says this, says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Is God authoring your pain? Then how can you ask God to take away your pain? That's a divided kingdom. Is God making you sick? Why would you pray to God to make you better? That's a divided kingdom. And speaking of divided, did you know that you are united with God? Don't show me an Old Testament verse where someone got jacked up. Because you in the New Testament are a new creation and you're united with God. You are his temple. You are the dwelling place of the king. It makes no sense for God to make you united with him, for him to dwell within you and then afflict you. To be afflicting himself. If he's making you sick, he's making him sick. If he's slowing you down, teaching you humility, he's doing it against himself. It makes no sense. That is a divided kingdom. That is a divided God. You are a divided vessel. The logic that we have when we understand that I am the righteousness of God. I am the hope of glory is what we're called. How is God glorified in your paralysis? Why? Because you can't be tempted to sin anymore? I don't call that glory. Do you? But my glory is to say that, God, no matter what I know who I am, I sing your praises because you're good, and I can only sing your praises because you're not the one who's authoring and orchestrating my pain. I'm done. (laughs) Let me end with this. My single aim at this, I know this is more heavy in the details than probably any other message I've ever done. It's for the exact reason that Satan used scripture against Jesus. Try to get Jesus to commit suicide off the top of the temple and say, the angels will save you. Quoted scripture. And Jesus wasn't buying it. You have to know that scripture can be used against you. And unfortunately, I think this is one of the passages in which the devil allows scripture to be used against us because he tricks us into thinking that our pain, our suffering, our sickness is part of God's will and for his glory. And I'm going to take this all the way to my grave and dedicate my life to this topic. I love you guys. So real talk, I sent Shadi a text and I'm like, what she didn't get? And I go, do you have an ending for this sermon? Because I'm like, <coughs> this is a little, <coughs> got a lot of details. And, uh, you know, I'm apostolic. And so I like to stay up here. And my teacher 
Eric likes me to have all these details. And right at the end, I was thinking of this. Uh, I, went to, I go to this uh, prayer meeting called the Upper Room in Loomis every Thursday morning. It's 34 minutes from my house, and it's worth every single minute I'm racing up there. And the guy that leads it, is he's like one of these super, super masculine guys. But Michael is amazing because when it comes time to worship, he takes off his shoes, and then he, he was doing it this morning. And I was watching him. He jumps around like this. Or he'll lay down. He's oblivious to everybody. And he doesn't even care. Or he'll come up and talk to me, and he'll be, he'll be like his face is right here in my face, and he'll be holding both my hands while he's talking to me for an extended period of time. <laughs> and I'm a hugger. Like I hug, I, I sign a lot of my texts, big hug, because I mean it. That's me. But what I was thinking is, and if we don't get the theology of what Eric taught tonight in our spirits, the word says, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And this, the way that scripture has been taught to many of us, like whenever we pray, this lady came up at the upper room. This lady comes up. Michael and I are talking, and she comes up with a cane sweetheart of a lady. And he goes, what's wrong with your knee? And she goes, she did something to her meniscus or I don't know what it was. And he goes, she could barely even explain it. He was like, oh, let's, let's pray for that. And he wasn't like all careful. You know how if you're of the opposite sex, people try to make sure like even I'll have somebody, you want to put your hand there and then I'll put my hand there because I don't want to. No, Michael, he's like down on his hands and knees, puts his hand right on her knee and starts praying. And then he goes, how's it feel? Just like a little kid. I mean, the same guy who dances and lays out on the floor for like an hour sometimes. He's down there praying. And she goes, huh? I think it feels the same. He goes, great, let's pray again. <laughs> and so we do. And I think it feels something moved. Awesome, something's moving. We prayed four times. And at the end, she goes, actually, I think I'm good. And he goes, yeah, that's my God. And so that's what we believe here. If the worship uh, team wants to come up, that's what we, and we have learned to believe this. We started out at a whole different place than we are today. And it has been worth the ride. I love what I've been learning about Jesus. God's been rearranging me. I told you guys I went through this deliverance. Uh, we could go Tuesday. And uh, if you're here and you think, well, you're a leader, why would you go through deliverance? You might need some yourself. I intend to go again one of these days. And after the deliverance, I felt like, oh my gosh, I got really free and my mind was really quiet but I felt really uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, wow. How do I attach? And people, I was with Eric. 
Thursday and he goes, are we okay? I go, yeah. I said, if we weren't okay, I'd tell you 30 seconds after I figured out we weren't okay. I'm just really quiet right now. God wants to change your life. If you haven't felt uncomfortable in a long time by what God's putting in front of you, you need to spend some time with him. Because he's not raising wussies in the faith. He's raising up sons and daughters. I've got sons and daughters, but I'm telling you, if a year after they've started being my son or my daughter in the kingdom, and they're still acting like they did a year ago, I'm doing something wrong or else they're not listening. So let me just back up and they can go back to the first thing I told them. And when they learn to do that, I'll talk again. Same way with God. He wants you to have confidence. When you pray, he wants you to stand. If you guys would stand with me. He wants you to be unafraid to approach the microphone and pray. He wants you to be unafraid to ask him to heal people. He wants you to be able to cast out, because the word says, that's one of the things he commands us to do, cast out demons. Ooh, I use the D word right here in church. So we just want to invite, if our prayer team could come up, we would love to pray for you like little kids. That's how we've learned to pray. Because we believe that God has freedom and hope for you tonight. So as our worship team leads us in some worship, you may need friends more than you need prayer. So some of us are going to be at the back and we're going to talk and chat back there. Some of us are going to be up here at the front. Whatever you need, get it. Come up here and get prayer and then go to the back and make some friends. Thank you so much for coming. We care about you. We're excited about what God's doing. We will see you next Thursday, same time, right here. Bless you.